Exploitation film is a type of movie that is typically created with the primary goal of making a profit by taking advantage of some culturally relevant trend, fear, or mainstream point of contention. If that seems like a fairly broad definition, you're not wrong. The subjects and pop cultural concepts that have been exploited for a quick buck in this way over the years are many and varied ranging from biker films back in the 1950s to slasher films in the 70s and 80s. Some exploitation subgenres, like blaxploitation and the women-in-prison-based media, eventually reversed roles and catalyzed work that one could argue revised the intent of the original works in a dramatic way. Marvel's Luke Cage was a character originally conceived to take advantage of the blaxploitation trends of the 1970s, but was later reintroduced as a figure of more nuanced African-American empowerment. Similarly, films like The Big Dollhouse and Women Prison Massacre are arguably the spiritual ancestors of shows like Orange is the New Black, which, rather than being purely focused on sex and violence for the titillation of viewers, presents deeper character development and less superficial subject matter than those earlier works. Though, of course, it would be difficult to be more superficial than something like Women Prison Massacre. In the 1930s and 40s, U.S. theaters were filled with black-and-white works loosely housed under the cautionary film genre, which presented storylines that served to warn primarily young people away from doing things their elders, politicians, and religious leaders thought they should avoid. Works like Children of Loneliness, which was a 1937 anti-homosexuality film, fall into this category, as do Child Bride, She Shoulda Said No, with an exclamation point in the title, and Sex Madness, a collection of films that were both cautionary films, but also very exploitation-focused. Probably the most famous of this subgenre, though, is the 1930s film Reefer Madness, which was produced by a director named Louis Gasner in 1936, but it wasn't really seen by anyone until the rights were bought up by another director and producer named Dwayne Esper in 1938, who himself produced an array of exploitation films, including Sex Maniac and How to Undress in Front of Your Husband. Esper got Reefer Madness into more theaters, and that effort alongside the distribution of a film that he himself directed, also in 1936, which was entitled Marijuana with an H instead of a J, helped shape drug law in the United States, arguably influencing how marijuana in particular was perceived, legislated, and portrayed in popular culture until the 60s and 70s. In the 60s and 70s, of course, there was a shift in the collective understanding of all kinds of drugs. The trouble was, as all these young punks, these hippies, were beginning to use illicit substances, their parents' generation, the folks making the laws, had preconceived notions about what things like marijuana were all about, in part due to the exploitation films about drugs that they had seen or heard about when they were kids. Interestingly, Reefer Madness, one of the cultural reference points that shaped the lawmaking generation's perception of these substances at the time, was rediscovered by these hippies in the 70s 
and used for the opposite intended purpose. It was used to demonstrate just how out of touch the establishment, which included the political establishment, but also the moral, religious, and medical establishment, was when it came to these sorts of drugs. And that out-of-touchness was so evident because reefer madness was just hilariously bad. Bad in the sense of being a terrible film. It's considered by many critics to be one of the worst films ever produced in all of human history. But also in the sense of being just laughably wrong about marijuana from a scientific and cultural standpoint. Included in the film which is in the public domain in the United States, by the way. So I will link to where you can view it for free online in the show notes if you are interested in trying to make it all the way through yourself. But included in the film is a group of high school students who are tempted by drug dealers to try marijuana and who then experience a series of horrible events, ranging from attempted rape to hallucinations, a hit-and-run car accident, and manslaughter, a suicide, and a rapid descent into madness. In a time period in which marijuana use had become so common, as was the case in the 70s here in the United States, and as is the case worldwide today, this collection of over-the-top tragedy comes across as just absolutely cringe-worthily hilarious. And that's why the hippies, when they rediscovered this film several decades after its heyday, claimed it as their own, adopting it with no small amount of irony as one of the most popular films to watch while getting high. What I want to talk about today is the status of marijuana in the United States and how that status influences and is influenced by the policies and regulations, not just here in the U.S., but in many other countries around the world as well. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from Politico, and it's entitled Why 2019 Could Be Marijuana's Biggest Year Yet, with the subtitle A Green Tide in Congress Raises Hopes That Pot Could Be Legal Under Federal Law By Year's End. I personally really enjoyed this piece because it got into some oft-undiscussed details about the politicking going on behind the scenes here in the United States related to the burgeoning marijuana and larger cannabis-related industry, including those like hemp and oils and other technically non-marijuana products. So let's talk a bit about marijuana first before we get into the bigger game or collection of games that are afoot here in the industry that is blooming around it. Cannabis, pot, weed, ganja, dope, herb, skunk, Mary Jane, marijuana, whatever you want to call it, and whatever it's typically called in your area and your time period and so on, is a substance derived from the cannabis plant which itself has either three species or three subspecies residing under a main genus of plant, depending on how you choose to categorize these sorts of things. Different experts seem to do so in different ways with this particular genus. The primary psychoactive constituent of this type of plant is tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, and it's possible to cultivate and process the plant and pieces of the plant in a variety of ways to achieve different chemistries, compounds, oils, and fibers. Hemp, for instance, is the common name for a no-THC or low-THC fiber derivative of the plant, 
While marijuana is typically used to describe the parts of the plant, the buds that are smoked or eaten to ingest the THC that they contain. As a consequence of this versatility, the cannabis plant has been used throughout recorded history for tens of thousands of different purposes, from essentially everything that cotton is used for, like clothing and paper and rope, to things like food, hemp milk, and biofuel. Maybe even more well-known than these non-drug-related use cases, though, are the myriad historical and contemporary uses that we humans have found for the psychoactive properties of this plant, from including it as an ingredient in anointing oils for Christian ceremonies, to the religious and spiritual tradition of using a concentrated resin version of the plant, a form called hashish, to commune with God or experience some kind of altered state. This hashish form of the plant was developed to amplify the psychoactive properties of the substance by folks living in ancient Middle Eastern and Northern African regions. It's actually a truism that the term assassin was derived from the term hashashin, which referred to a group of people who ate hashish regularly. It's now thought by most scholars, though, that this was actually a mistranslation or misunderstanding by European explorers like Marco Polo, who related the tales about the area to their readers back home. The people in groups who would come to be called assassins were probably not really convinced to kill by this particular drug, as once thought. Instead, it's more likely that the term was applied to this group by those who hated them, because the term hashashin, meaning hashish smokers or consumers, was an implied insult at the time, meaning something like an uncouth commoner who's just drugging out all day while lounging around on the streets doing nothing important. So the etymology of the word is doubly interesting in that it tells us something about how common the consumption of hashish was in that part of the world at that time, but it also tells us something about how the normal, everyday person was perceived by those who would have been in the position to explain their society to visiting Europeans in the courts of wealthy merchants and royalty. On a purely chemical level, cannabis contains 483 known compounds, one of which is the aforementioned THC, and somewhere between 65 and 113 of those other compounds, depending on the type of cannabis, are cannabinoids, which is a type of chemical compound that interacts with a type of receptor in our brain called cannabinoid receptors. These receptors are part of our endocannabinoid system, which interconnects with many components of our central nervous and peripheral nervous systems, and which are included in the expression and regulation of things like our perception of pain, our appetite, our mood and memory, but also things like fertility, the emergence of pregnancy, and other fairly old-school mammalian physiological triggers and processes of that kind. It's worth noting that cannabinoids are not found exclusively in cannabis plants. They're also found in several types of echinacea plants, in the kava plant, and in black truffles, a super expensive type of edible mushroom that rich people eat in their $500 risottos. We do not know the full extent of what cannabinoids, including those found in cannabis and cannabis-derived products like CBD oil, which is based on cannabidiol, which is one of those non-THC cannabinoids found in the cannabis plant, or the many other smokable, inhalable, edible, and absorbable versions of these substances. We do not know the full extent of what they do to us. Not entirely. We do, however, know that these substances can have profound physical and mental effects on human beings, 
including allowing users to experience a change in overall perception, a heightened mood, a high or a stoned feeling, and an amplified appetite. We also know that it can do strange things to users' memory, can mess with their motor skills, and can inject or increase paranoid, anxious, or depressed feelings. It's also suspected, though it hasn't been thoroughly proven, that those who begin using this category of drugs at a young age can have their brains permanently rewired because of the externally influenced interactions with their cannabinoid receptors, which, again, connect to and moderate all kinds of internal processes. So it makes sense that messing with those systems, as they are growing, using these sorts of drugs, might result in those systems being changed in some measurable way. There's also a correlatory connection between cannabinoid use and psychosis, which is a label applied to a wide variety of conditions in which the person experiencing psychosis is unable to discern reality from delusion. So chronic hallucinations, some types of depression, schizophrenia, these are all linked to cannabis use. And the main question is whether folks who experience these sorts of issues are more likely to seek out drugs like cannabis, or if the use of cannabis makes these conditions more likely to emerge, to express themselves in people who may or may not have developed them if they had not used these drugs. We do not have enough data on this to say one way or the other right now, but much of the research that I have seen related to psychoactive substances in general, including mushrooms, LSD, peyote, ayahuasca, and so on, all have this as a potential side effect. Actually, it's those who are most amped up and excited about the potential positive impacts of these substances who seem most vocal about these types of warnings. If some kind of psychosis or psychological disorder runs in your family, or if you've ever suffered from instances of them in the past, it's probably best to not use these substances, because anecdotally, according to these enthusiasts, these practitioners, these substances can make it more likely that those potential issues will become practical issues. So again, while not a concrete fact in the same way that our understanding of some aspects of the cannabinoid receptor system in our brains and bodies are facts, this is something worth keeping in mind and working into our math when assessing the place and legality of these substances. As I mentioned in the intro, the cannabis scare of the 1930s and 40s here in the U.S. seems to have influenced the legal status of the plant and its derived substances in the country for many decades, arguably to this day in some regards. This scare can probably be traced back originally to the International Opium Convention of 1912, which was the first international drug control treaty in the world, signed at The Hague during a conference that was held as an attempt to curtail the rampant addiction and abuse that was being seen as a consequence of the international export of opium, but which also included, as something of an afterthought, the export of morphine, cocaine, and cannabis. Interestingly, by the time this convention was turned into law and implemented as part of the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I in 1915, the U.S. was getting itchy feet. At that point in history, the U.S. and China both were considering stricter prohibitionary approaches to drugs and alcohol. And so by the time this treaty went into full effect, they actually withdrew from that treaty, leaving the rest of the world to restrict these drugs, while they instead completely prohibited them. 
The United States and China were pulled back into the international drug-regulating fold when, in 1938, the so-called International Convention Relating to Dangerous Drugs was put into effect by the League of Nations, which was the organizational precursor to the United Nations. But the implementation of this new convention was complicated by Egypt's desire to prohibit hashish alongside the other drugs specified. And India said, hey, wait a minute, if you ban hash, you also ban Indian hemp, which is commonly used to make hash. And we use that for, among other things, religious ceremonies. So let's step back and consider this for a moment. This led to a caveat in the implementation of these prohibitions that allowed Indian hemp to be exported as long as those doing the importing could show that they had medical or scientific or religious uses for the product. And although this particular convention was later replaced by the single convention on narcotic drugs in 1961, that exclusion worked its way in various forms into most other future drug-related international treaties as well. Which is a big part of why, even after this new single convention on narcotic drugs went into effect in the early 60s, which banned all kinds of new synthetic substances alongside the traditional opium and cannabis and such, different control groups were included, which meant different countries could adhere to the treaty while also allowing different sorts of drugs into their countries for a bunch of different acceptable reasons. This allowed drugs of various types to continue circulating internationally, legally, even in an age where overall, technically, most officially sanctioned drug trafficking had been curtailed or eliminated completely. And this is a big part of why research and experimentation with these drugs did not cease entirely. There were a lot of loopholes in a lot of these rules and other places that you could go to have more access and legal drug rights if the place you lived was not conducive to your particular fascination or addiction. Now, all that said, within the United States, the 70s was not a great time for the legal status of cannabis and cannabis-derived substances. Yes, this was a period of intense exploration of drugs by all sorts of subcultures, but it was also kind of a super dangerous time to be a psychonaut, especially after the Controlled Substances Act went into effect, which was the legal foundation of the various schedules, meaning the various legal classifications of drugs in the United States. So Schedule 1 substances, those with a high potential for abuse that have no officially accepted medical purpose and that lack official safety standards for use under medical supervision, were no longer allowed to be prescribed or used and were subject to hardcore production quotas regulated by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. So there was only a very finite amount of Schedule One drugs that could even be legally produced, and that finite amount would be tracked and guarded diligently by a government organization tasked with doing pretty much just that. Notably, the Schaefer Commission, which was officially known as the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, and which was set up by President Richard Nixon's administration in the early 70s, called for the decriminalization of marijuana possession in the United States after conducting their research. The White House, which had asked them to conduct the report in the first place, ignored their recommendation and more stringently outlawed marijuana, potentially because they thought it would be politically popular to do so. It's impossible to know if that's true, of course, or if that was the only reason for their decision, if that was the case, but that is one of the theories here. 
Either way, the best data at the time seemed to indicate that marijuana was not really that big of a deal, especially compared to substances like alcohol, which was already legal. But whatever the motivation behind this move, the Nixon administration categorized marijuana as a Schedule I drug, a decision that determined in large part the modern history of this substance in the United States. We know that the consequences of making marijuana a Schedule I drug have been many and very impactful because we have means of comparison, namely countries in which they have not been as hardcore about punishing people who use marijuana, who sell marijuana, and even industries that market and provide marijuana legally or semi-legally to their citizenry. Uruguay was the first country in the world to fully legalize marijuana in December of 2013, and they did so in large part to try to avoid the path that many other Latin American countries had followed in previous decades, succumbing to the temptation and short-term benefits of allowing drug cartels to set up shop and operate on the fringes of society in their territory. These cartels would often provide those in power with money and other personal benefits before eventually becoming powerful themselves, challenging or even superseding official government structures and running the region in kind of an underground, behind-the-throne de facto way. This has been the case in parts of Mexico, perhaps most famously, but also throughout South and Central America at different points in the 20th century. Uruguay's gambit here was to curtail these illegal activities by legalizing marijuana and bringing that whole industry into the light. This is a similar argument that's been made about sex work, actually. And the data we have from places that legalize some types of drugs and other activities that typically operate at the fringes of society, like sex work, indicates that doing so, legalizing these things, makes life safer for those working within and around these industries, but also dramatically decreases the downsides of the industries on society. It allows for regulation, which means it's possible to step in and say, here's how we can make this less dangerous, so let's start doing things in this less dangerous way. Being able to check up on the marijuana supply, for instance, allows regulators to ensure that it's not tainted. Being able to check up on business licenses allows regulators to ensure the money being made is legit and not being used for laundering or cartel or gang-related activities. It allows them, in other words, to ensure that the drug trade is just the drug trade, rather than being tied to violence, to human trafficking, and other things of that nature. Which, unfortunately, is very often the case if you trace the trade back far enough in places where it's completely illegal, and therefore underground, and therefore unregulated. Another benefit of opening up a legal supply chain for a drug like marijuana is that you can set age restrictions, which, as we know from the sale of alcohol and other substances, does not do as much as we might like to think, practically, but it does at least set a precedent about it. And as I mentioned before, there's good evidence that smoking marijuana at a younger age makes it more likely that your brain will be rewired and become dependent on it, like a tree growing up around a fence post. If you try to remove that fence post, that drug, at some point, you will find that the structure of the tree is unsteady. It's become reliant on that fence post because it's grown up around it. Our brains are still developing until somewhere in our mid-twenties. So part of the effort here, even if it's imperfect, 
is to stifle the potential neurological issues that can emerge from teenagers indulging in this kind of drug and becoming addicts as a consequence. And although age restrictions will not work perfectly, there is data that they have done a relatively decent job when it comes to cigarettes and alcohol in the United States and other countries. You can almost always get your hands on both of these things if you want at whatever age, but it usually takes more work and more money, and that provides sufficient friction to keep these things from becoming a normal habit for the majority of people who otherwise might get hooked on them at a young age in a friction-free environment where these things are just available willy-nilly. Another benefit of legalizing or partially legalizing marijuana that's a little bit trickier to quantify, but which seems to be beneficial nonetheless, is the cultural place of the drug and how that perceived place is changed when you make it accessible and safe and disconnected from the black market. In both the Netherlands and in Spain, marijuana is somewhat illegal, but legal for use in specific circumstances or specific places. The Dutch can keep and cultivate small amounts for themselves, and coffee shops can sell to their customers as long as they don't sell to minors. In Spain, there are marijuana clubs where you can buy and use the drug, but outside of those clubs, it's a more complex legal issue. It's kind of, in practice, more illegal. As a consequence of it being accessible in these places, though, and available legally, safely, and again, disconnected from myriad black market issues like slavery and violence, people tend to use it differently. Rather than it being a sneaky thing, a rebellious act, it's treated more like a high-end cup of coffee or a fancy cocktail. Something that you don't binge on or use every day or abuse, but something that you treat yourself to from time to time. An indulgence that feels good rather than something akin to the near-compulsive consumption of a daily can of soda that you have with lunch that you imbibe but don't really think about. Canada fully legalized marijuana use and possession in 2018 and was the second country after Uruguay to do so. Their rationales for legalization were similar to Uruguay's, and the risks they took in doing so were also similar. There was a chance that legalizing it could have exacerbated problems caused by the drug, by underage use, and from use by folks at risk for psychosis and other psychological conditions. Going into legalization, though, Canada decided to implement strict laws about how it could be promoted and marketed and did their best to ensure distribution laws would allow them to sidestep awkward conversations about the international norms and treaties that they were effectively breaking. And that's actually a big part of the story here, the part that's keeping many countries, including the United States, from just saying, okay, let's give this a shot and legalize at the national level and let's implement that overnight. Those international treaties that I spoke about earlier, those are still in place. And any country that legalizes marijuana is essentially saying to the world, yeah, I know you guys don't want this stuff in circulation and don't want it even produced by anyone participating in the globalized interconnected marketplace because that risks it being shipped to your country as well. But we're going to do it anyway. So, you know, good luck with that. And sorry, not sorry. This is part of what is so tricky about even discussing legalization of marijuana and many other drugs. These international norms and laws were set up in the early to mid-20th century, and most countries today have based their entire modern drug policy, commercial policies, and law enforcement policies around these treaties. That means it's not as easy as just deciding to try something new and making an internal decision to do so. 
If your government decides to give legalization some kind of shot, you're running the risk of pissing off the rest of the world because their legal and economic infrastructure is predicated on that traditional drug-blocking model. And like a vaccine, that model is at least somewhat reliant on everyone else doing their part, not introducing these drugs into the system in the first place. Now, this Politico article stood out to me because it addresses in detail why this moment, rather than even a few years ago, might be the moment when the tide finally turns on all of this in the United States. The Cliff Notes version of the situation that it describes is that the weight of popularity seems to be behind legalization, and increasingly so. And there seem to be enough politicians in office who seem to support, who seem to broadly support that concept. So we could see those politicians begin to push the issue sooner rather than later. And we may see it become a pivotal talking point in the 2020 election season, something that would help differentiate the new batch of democratic and further left progressive politicians from their more conservative political opponents. At the same time, we're seeing the issue come up elsewhere across national borders, which indicates this may be something that has been percolating worldwide for a while in our global disseminated culture, and that it's finally reaching a tipping point, probably for multiple reasons in different places. This recalibration is probably at least in part due to a shift in the posture of those who don't seem to have any strong ideological position on the matter, but who are keen to make money from it, just as they would be keen to make money on anything else in any other industry. It's been interesting to note that some Republican politicians and pundits here in the United States, folks who have spoken out against drugs in general many times in the past, have begun to quietly and sometimes loudly invest in cannabis and cannabis-related businesses and infrastructure, a tacit indication that they believe the tide is turning in that direction and want to make sure that they profit from it, whatever their internal convictions might or might not be. This is the kind of money movement you tend to see when the political will and other chess pieces are finally in place, but the final few moves have not been made yet. The folks with the overhead view and the insider information make their investments before the rest of us because they know what's coming, or they have a better idea of what is probably coming, and want to benefit from the impending surge in interest and subsequent mainstream investment that tends to follow. We are also seeing more people from traditionally, economically, and politically underrepresented communities, like the African-American community here in the U.S., but also other people of color of various backgrounds, coming into the limelight and acquiring different sorts of political and economic leverage, becoming congresspeople and governors, but also becoming outspoken entrepreneurs, celebrities, and so on. The collective storyline on this subject has been shifted not just by time and economic tides, I think, but also because we have these new voices finally added to the mix, adding new context to the story that we've been telling ourselves for decades. And that could lead at some point, and perhaps sooner rather than later, to significant changes to this and other issues that disproportionately and often very negatively impact people of color. The most likely next step if this does indeed become a popular political matter here in the United States, and if those with the power to do something about it actually do something about it, is a movement to deschedule marijuana nationally. 
That would mean states would be even more liberated to do what they will when it comes to the drug, and they could, over time, demonstrate sufficient use cases and evidence that they eventually convince someone with national control to legalize it on the federal level, rather than just in some states, as is the case today, and as could remain the case for a very long while. Descheduling would mean, in essence, making marijuana less of a concern, and it would deprioritize enforcement of the laws that are currently in place, where the drug remains technically illegal. It would also, importantly, begin to pull the U.S. away from those international treaties that, again, kind of set the stage for all of this. Those treaties would probably soften up the more countries we see pull away from them. They wouldn't necessarily collapse overnight, but it's possible a lack of support for these treaties could lead to a complete reworking at some point in the near future, lest they just wither away, technically still in place but ignored by half of the signatories, and therefore reflecting badly upon the bodies and organizations that helped set them up. They would probably drop it wholesale before they allowed that to happen. We could also find, after more state-by-state -state experimentation, that this whole legalization push is actually a bad idea. Maybe we will learn more about the long-term effects of cannabis on people and realize that instead of bringing it into line with things like alcohol and tobacco, which are also harmful but which are currently legal, we will put more laws into place regulating how we market and promote those latter two substances as well, implementing more limits on more things rather than fewer limits on currently illegal things. It's also possible, and this seems very likely to me personally, we may be watching right now the beginning of the corporatization of marijuana, the birth of an industry ruled not by cartels but by corporations, who are not trafficking in humans, which is good, but who are doing many of the same often skeevy things corporations tend to do. Among them, doing their best to break the rules to sell more and more of a product that they are newly free to flog and promote. These entities have shown that when they are economically incentivized to infinitely increase their market share and the scale of their market, they will do exactly that. They will surreptitiously hook people addict them to their product from an early age. They will lobby to keep regulations from reigning in their profits. They will cook the books and they will abuse workers. We've seen it all before. It's just in this case, we will be tasked with weighing the downsides of cartels and gangs against the downsides of the corporatization of an industry, which would be interesting and maybe a little bit depressing. That said, descheduling would also quite probably cripple aspects of the so-called prison industrial complex here in the United States, which relies in part on filling up prisons, often privately run prisons, with people who have committed minor drug violations so that they can be paid insultingly low wages to make products sold by corporations around the world. Marijuana and other minor drug infractions are not the only load-bearing column in that particular structure, but it is a major one. It makes me wonder how some industries and some politicians who those industries invest in heavily to keep that particular scheme afloat would take this kind of shift. How they would manage once that particular and unfortunately widespread abuse, which has been very beneficial to them and tragically horrible to a whole lot of human beings, is alleviated, or at least partially alleviated. A lot of what's happened as a consequence of the overenthusiastic scheduling of marijuana has been horrible, especially for some traditionally oppressed groups and especially for countries where a lot of the production takes place.
So there are a lot of good arguments for decriminalizing it. On the other hand, marijuana is not consequence-free, and we still don't know enough about the science behind it to say what the full extent of those consequences might be, and for whom, and what we might do to ameliorate them. By solving some of these problems, we could accidentally introduce entirely new ones, but through inaction, we could amplify these existing problems that we have until they are so structurally integrated that nothing will ever be able to fully extract them in the future. There's very seldom an obvious right or wrong path when it comes to the law, no one direction that is entirely consequence-free, and I think that goes double for anything that is connected, even tangentially, to brain science, international treaties, and politics. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Personality Brokers by Marve Emre. This book is about the Myers-Briggs personality test and other personality tests in general, sort of as well, but the Myers-Briggs in particular. And shockingly, this test and its history was even weirder than I assumed. I am not personally a big fan of it. The idea that there's only 16 types of people in the world kind of smacks of astrology to me, which to each their own for entertainment purposes, or if you want a starting point for discussions about personalities and things like that, but there's little or no science behind a whole lot of these things. And that is definitely the case with the Myers-Briggs test, which was based on some really interesting science of the early 20th century, but that science was also incredibly flawed, later shown to be fairly nonsensical. And the test itself was predicated on some fairly bizarre and at times psychosexual meanderings of a woman and her daughter who were both incredibly clever and capable people who were also very borderline in a bunch of different ways that are important for the purposes of their ability to gauge and sort other people, much less themselves. I don't want to give away too much about this. It is a crazy, compelling story. It's very interesting. Everybody involved is really remarkable, and the storytelling itself is quite good, so I don't want to take away from that experience. But I will say that whether you are a huge believer and hardcore adherent to the Myers-Briggs or somebody who was already skeptical like myself, you will probably be surprised about where this thing came from and agog at the fact that it took the role in society and corporate America in particular that it did. If any of that sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend picking up a copy of The Personality Brokers by Marve Emre. M-E-R-V-E-E-M-R-E. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find my new project, which is kind of an advice column about life, at somethoughtsaboutliving.com, and you can find out more details about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. It's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.